Yeah, well, we have to we have to go back to um, the end of history, back to the year two thousand, um, before before nine eleven and uh, history started happening again. Uh, so so I'm I'm an eighteen year old going to Manchester in September two thousand um, to study a history degree at the end of history. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of The Popular Show, uh, the popular show about populism, pop culture, uh, politics, other P things. Um, and uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're delighted to be welcoming Juliet Jakes this evening. Uh, first of all, let me introduce you to my co-hosts. I'm Alfie. How are you, James? I'm very well, Alfie. Great to be here. David, how are you? It's a brilliant day for a revolution, as always. Let's let's have one here and now. Um, and Julia, uh, how are you? And where are you? Where are you coming to us from? You're from London. I'm in London too. Actually, it's not too uh, far. I'm from I'm in London. I'm from a town called Hawley in Surrey, uh, which is one of many reasons why I'm also up for a revolution. <laughs> which which, um, which we know from uh, trans a memoir, Juliet's book with Verso, which is fantastic and came out a few years ago. Um, and um, she has. Um, been writing and uh, and uh, reporting on on issues relating to living as a as a transgender individual for many years now, and has a new book as well coming out um, called Variations, uh, which is with which uh, publisher, and when will it be out? Uh, Juliet, tell us a bit about that. That's uh, with uh, Influx Press, who are a fantastic independent publisher run by well set up by Kit Kalis and Gary Barton, oh, yeah. been going for a for a few years. Kit and I wrote the Culture for Labour letter together um, in the run-up to the 2019 election. So, you know, he's a friend and comrade. Um, so it's out in June, 3rd of June. It's a volume of short stories uh, telling a kind of potted history of trans and non-binary people in the United Kingdom from the early Victorian period to the present. Oh, right. uh, so there's, well. there's 11 stories. They use a variety of different styles and forms. So one of them's a set of blog posts, uh, there's an oral history, a chapter from an invented memoir, a film script, an academic paper, a secret diary, and so forth, and a variety of uh, different characters. Um, oh, it sounds amazing. I, actually, um, I know Kit Kalis as well. Um, he's a great guy. Um, yeah, we, we, when I was doing some stuff at the Radical Book Fair, uh, he was doing stuff there with Influx Press quite a few years ago, and he's always been yeah. really supportive and cool. I hadn't sort of put two and two together with that. That's, that's awesome. Um, great to great to hear about that. We'll, we'll be, um, yeah. When's it out? When's it out? Third uh, of June. It's publication. Oh, so we're we're right we're right close to the release. So we'll be looking out for that. Um, and it's an absolute pleasure to have you with us. Thanks so much for coming. I've got lots of questions about um, you know what you've what you've been writing about and what you've been doing, especially around Manchester. We both were at Manchester Uni, and when I was reading about it, um, so many um, of the sort of locations and even individuals um, you mentioned are were familiar to me. So I can't wait to talk about that. But I'm going to hand over to David to, to kick things off about what you've been um, talking about recently, and then um, I'll be back. Yeah, it's a really interesting time to be an American observing from the outside. In the recent uh, past week, we've seen some uh, 
uh, protests over a recent killing of a woman who uh, was murdered by a police officer off duty. Um, and we're seeing the protests take um, like many issues relating to feminism and male violence and, and violence in against women in the UK, taking on really interesting sort of tinges of the fractured nature of, of sort of the feminine in the UK. Um, one of the things that I'm seeing from the outside is that I'm seeing reoccurring themes. Uh, one is the sort of reoccurring turf theme that I, I think is a really a real cancer in sort of the UK right now. Um, I'm seeing sort of a carceral nature to a lot of the the calls for justice, and I'm also seeing you know an institutionalized police culture that is dangerous towards women and, and dangerous towards uh, all people who are, are encountering it. You know, and that's not. That's not something that's very similar to what's going on in Canada and what's going on in the United States and around the world. Um, so I have to ask, you know, what should an American or someone from Canada be be seeing here that that we probably aren't about this issue? Um, I mean, that that sounds like a reasonable summary to me, to be honest. Um, I mean, I, I'm not sure, you know, due to the strange nature of the the pandemic, um, you know, we're if you're based in London and indeed near central London, you're not really much more living there at the moment than someone in um, Montreal or Florida or uh, wherever. Um, so in a sense, we're all kind of outsiders to to any society at the moment, really. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a fairly accurate summary. Uh, I was at the protest against police violence and brutality uh, and misogyny on Sunday. I went to New Scotland Yard with a, a group of friends. There was quite a big turnout. Uh, it was a very peaceful protest. The I mean, at the point at which I left, the police were present. I didn't see them arresting anybody. Um, you could see how um, the police would generate the kind of friction that then they would then use to justify them arresting people. But at the point I was there, they didn't. Um, and again, because we're all living uh, even more so online at the moment, um, you know, a lot of the sort of questions about who is on the wrong end of um, of institutional violence uh, and the sort of structural violence that comes with an organisation like the Metropolitan Police, uh, you know, a lot of this has been bogged down into just like very familiar, very tiresome um, and draining uh, arguments about you know whether or not trans women are women and so whether or not violence against trans women and non-binary people and trans men even um you know whether that counts as violence against women or misogyny uh, or not uh, and obviously it's particularly pronounced when people are discussing trans women because a lot of the arguments about um gender identity in the UK really come down to um, what Owen Hathaway, for example, has described as a national bullying campaign against trans women. So Angela Davis, um, you know, argued in the 1970s that uh, the reason why black women were kind of diffident or resident, uh, resident about um, joining like such a characteristic second wave feminist campaign as the, the anti-rape movement, was that historically false rape accusations had been a major 
kind of agent of racism, uh, the Emmett Till case mm. as, as the kind of supreme one. Um, more recently, uh, Aya Gruber, who, who we've interviewed in the, in the past, has argued that um, liberal feminists in America were sort of drafted in behind the notorious Clinton crime bill. So in other words, there's been a kind of history of divergence between the women's movement and uh, the uh, black rights movement, um, rooted in the fact that many of the protections that feminists have historically demanded have been then weaponized directly against black, black men, first of all. Um, I wonder if, like, what's going on in the UK at the moment, where the alleged uh, murder of a, a young woman by a police officer followed immediately by the brutalization of uh, feminists of, of all races uh, trying to have a peaceful vigil, followed again overnight by uh, a, um, a, a bill criminalizing protest. I wonder if there's kind of potential here for a, a convergence of that historical tension between feminism and black rights today between, we might say, Me Too and Black Lives Matter. Um, and, and the second part of that question is that that's not irrelevant to the trans movement because um, Sophie Lewis, for example, has argued that the one reason for Britain's unusual transphobia is that British feminism has never had to listen to black feminism, that the black mm. population is sufficiently small, that uh, a very kind of uh, bourgeois white feminism in Britain has never had to kind of question its own categories. And, and that has had ramifications for trans people. Trans people in America have had kind of that sort of question mark over white feminism that that uh, that, that, that black feminism uh, presented. I, I, I wonder if there's potential in this moment for um, a, a kind of sort of positive like reunion between kind of different radical strands right now as as heartbreaking as virtually every kind of element of it is. Yeah, I mean that's a really astute observation by Sophie. I hadn't heard it put quite in uh, quite in those terms, but yeah, that's that's a really great point. Um, yeah, I mean you think there would be, wouldn't you? You think at this point the enemy is so all-consuming and it's so obvious that you know the Tories haven't given a lot of like transphobes what they wanted with you know rejecting the Gender Recognition Act reforms and you know creating a harsher climate for trans people are not going to let like cis feminists off the hook either for example mm -hmm. they're not going to do anything about structural or institutional misogyny uh which is the thing that we should all be uniting against so yeah i mean i do think this potentially could be a quite kind of unifying and clarifying moment because the you know the mask is off the enemy so much now that i think anyone who still sees like trans people as the enemy or people of color as the enemy rather than you know the government mm -hmm. um I, I don't think that position is sustainable unless you're just more or less in ideological cahoots with the ruling party i was quite interested in what you were saying um i think it was earlier today we were talking about this this um event that you'd done 
through the world transformed which you can find on facebook where you were talking about the discourse around prisons and things like that um where you were specific and this has also been part of your book that that this is um this is not so much about like these there's these kind of um almost have become quite cliched kind of ways in which people talk about this issue with the police prisons transgender people uh, where it's like they want the debate to be about you know where do trans people fit in women's men's prisons etc and that sort of sets the terms of the debate uh, and frames things in the wrong way uh, to begin with um so there's this sort of media institutions who are determined to set the the debate around trans issues you, you've argued and i wonder if you could say something about that and and how how you see that 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 process playing out and and, and what kind of damage it does kind of thing well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, myself and others made a real effort uh, in the first part of the last decade just passed to improve trans media representation, bring more trans and non-binary voices into mainstream media, because we felt that the terms on which our lives are being discussed were not being set by us, and they were not very helpful. Um, that, for a few years, seemed to be reasonably successful with several kind of caveats and setbacks. Um, but nonetheless, there was a period where that seemed to be um, a successful tactic. And I think I and others underestimated the extent to which that was utterly reliant on the good grace of editors, um, people in positions of relative power, um, more so than we had within these these mainstream institutions. You know, we, we were all just freelancers. None of us had any institutional power in any of those organizations. Um, and we got outgunned, basically. Um, editors made a choice, either conscious or not, uh, doesn't really matter, to repeatedly platform uh, people who call themselves gender critical. I can never hear that phrase without thinking of Alan Partridge describing himself as a homo-skeptic, but um, gender critical, um, feminists whose main interest, it seemed, um, or driving obsession, depending on how Linehan you are. Um, main interest was uh, pushing back against trans visibility and, and trans rights. Uh, and they did this by, you know, kind of, um, it's the same tactic that the alt-right used, really, which is just insisting on having a debate. Uh, and the debate was on the subject, always on the subject of their choosing, which is basically, are trans identities valid? Are, are trans people who they say they are? Should they be allowed to be who they say they are? Should they be allowed to say who they are? Um, implicitly or explicitly would argue no. Um, so really the point of that is just to kind of wear us down and wear us out. Uh, our opponents seem to have infinite energy for having this argument. Uh, we really don't because it's boring and it's demeaning and it's stupid um, and it's a waste of time. And the whole point is to stop us talking about trans healthcare or social security or employment, uh, let alone like positive things like trans art and culture. Um, I think it does a lot of damage. Um, you know, Liz Truss leaked some proposals to the Times or someone leaked some proposals to the Times over the summer uh, in which they sort of said that not only would reforms to the Gender Recognition Act to... Uh, allow trans people to self-identify and to attain gender recognition without the approval of medical professionals. Not only would that not be happening, but actually we'd be taking rights away and we would be barring uh, trans people from single-sex spaces effectively. 
which make it in practice make it really hard for us to participate in uh, in public life. Uh, I don't know how they would have planned to enforce this, whether they plan to have cops in every bathroom, which looking at the way things are at the moment, maybe they do. But, um, you know, this, this was something that was really kind of dangled over our head and intended to terrify us. And in both cases, opposition to the Gender Recognition Act reform for self-identification and also the exclusion of trans people from single-sex places, um, both of these... Um, proposed points of legislation drew very, very much from like these endless debates in uh, particularly the broadsheets, the Times through to the Guardian. Um, so it does a tremendous amount of damage. Um, and, you know, yeah. the kind of bad faith freedom of speech lot, uh, you know, my, my reply to them is that, you know, the whole point of this speech is it's not just speech, it translates into regressive policy and harmful policy. Um, I don't really i mean there are limited things we can do i mean i do think the tide will turn on this eventually i think in the next kind of 10 to 20 years i mean you know the yeah. the moral panic and the national bullying of, of trans people trans women in particular looks very similar to the campaign against gay men in the 80s yeah. that led to section 28 yeah. um and obviously all of that stuff, I mean, it looked awful at the time, but it looks worse now. And I think the same is true of this trans coverage. But I think we might have to wait another 10 or 20 years, really, before there's a kind of mass realisation of, of just how appalling this stuff is. The way in which Britain is an outlier, um, the role of the liberal press in perpetuating transphobia. Um, I, I mean, I know you, you said that you don't really think that it matters that much, but could I just push you a little bit on like, how that change kind of looked from inside? I mean, 2010, you were writing your celebrated column on, on, on your own gender transition, which, which became the basis of your book in 2015. And Helen Lewis, um, who was then an editor of, of The New Statesman is, is one of the endorsements on that book. Today, she's the kind of byword for British liberal turfism. So I guess, I, I mean, you, you've told the story in various ways in the past, but how do you look on that right now, on that, on that change? Yeah, I mean, it was a really frustrating and difficult thing to, to be a part of because, you know, as I said earlier, I did all of this as a freelancer, so I was very much an outsider. And you have this thing where, you know, you you don't get any of the kind of financial perks or security of having your name attached to an outlet as a freelancer, uh, but everyone associates you with it. Um, and when I was writing for The Guardian in 2010 to 12, you know, The Guardian had quite a bad history on on trans stuff, um, and it's exactly the same kind of um, supposedly feminist transphobia. Um, and a lot of the same people who've kind of maintained their positions, or at least until recently, uh, who are responsible for it. Um, but with The Guardian, you know, it was quite clear that I was a new writer trying to establish myself. The Guardian was a big organisation, Um and I was only writing for one small part of it. And I think people understood, at least implicitly, um, that, you know, if The Guardian were publishing me and at the same time publishing other things on trans issues that either accidentally or deliberately not very good, um, that it wasn't really, you know, my fault. Uh, I didn't really 
carry much influence. I felt people understood that. With the States when it was harder, because I was a regular blogger for them on all sorts of subjects, which didn't translate at all into um, particularly good kind of financial remuneration, uh, quite the opposite, in fact. Um, and um, But, you know, people sort of understood that the States was quite a small team, um, I did events in 2013 with the whole of the sort of new statesman blogging team, Helen Lewis included, who was editing uh, the website at the time uh, and made a certain type of feminism uh, central to, to the statesman's um, offering online. Uh, so I think it looked to people a lot more like I had a lot more influence than maybe I actually did. Uh, and, you know, I got caught in a really difficult position because the statesman sort of kept publishing these gender critical op-eds, uh, sort of pushing the line further and further in terms of uh, what could be said. Um, and I always get in trouble for saying this, but some of it was just kind of committed transphobia. But I think a lot of it was just personal animosity from people who maybe thought out loud about trans issues online, um, got a lot of pushback from people you know some of which was uh more aggressive than than others but you know a lot of which was i think perfectly reasonable perfectly fair uh and you know doubled down in the face of it um and a lot of people get angry at me when i say that um because you know no these people are awful transphobes and you should say that they are and always were awful transphobes and yeah maybe that was always there and you know the old kind of like scratch a liberal find a tory thing um perfectly willing to uh, listen to that as an explanation. Uh, but, you know, I actually think it's worse. I think it's pettier and stupider and nastier and more indicative of the rot uh, at the heart of, like, the British commentariat. Um, that, you know, these people sort of don't even believe in this stuff that much. Or, you know, maybe the mask has become the face by now, but I think in some cases people saw it was like a good career move, you know, the old guard of British journalism... Uh, was quite transphobic and it was a good way to be in with them, um, especially if you kind of kept up the pretense that you were somehow like now the the radical outsiders because, you know, the conservative trans elite like ran everything. Um, and some people, I think, did convince themselves of that. Uh, and some people, yes, I mean, I think, you know, did take up these positions because they were just angry that the like kids were cooler than them and had better parties and didn't like them. Um, I think that's in there as well. And yes, some of them are and always were committed transphobes. Um, but again, you know, um, however they got there, the effect is the same. It's just, you know, kind of drowned the 2010s wave of trans and non-binary like columnists, journalists, activists in just this wave of tedious bullshit. Um, and yeah, I mean, and like I said, sort of knowing people personally and being and watching this line gradually being moved and not being sure how to balance the fact that, you know, having an in at that publication meant that I could challenge it from the inside and having personal contact with people meant I could sit down and have private conversations with them, uh, which I'm not going to recount here, um, was useful. But at the same time, um, you know, the longer it went on, the worse it got for my not just my public reputation, but my own mental health. Mm -hmm. And in sort of summer 2014, I saw which way the wind was blowing. So I wrote what was supposed to be an 800 word, ended up being eight and a half thousand word 
uh, op-ed about how transphobia functions in the British media and the effect it has on trans writers and, you know, how sort of it intersected with sort of more right-wing debate culture. Um, and then I quit. I mean, I already had a couple of other articles in the pipeline I promised to do, but I quit uh, after uh, filing that piece. Um, and I um, applied to do a PhD uh, and I didn't get out of journalism. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm on this show because I still do journalism, I think. I wouldn't not call myself a journalist, but I stopped pursuing journalism as a career. Um, and I did a creative critical writing PhD and I wrote the short stories that are about to be published and really kind of recast myself as like a kind of arts critic, yeah. filmmaker, creative writer. Um, and I'm really, really glad I did that. It's been much more rewarding uh, intellectually mm. and artistically. Your description of um, like... Uh, a kind of malign effect of uh, online culture on politics. Uh, the, it, that's not the usual one. The usual one is, you know, Facebook and Cambridge Analytica mm. and bots and uh, and Russian trolls have uh, brainwashed the masses into reactionary positions. But your claim is that actually it's relative elites, people with influence and power in politics and in the media, have kind of come face to face with their readers and their public for the first time online and it has sent them into a pretty crazy kind of corner actually um i mean what you're describing with the kind of transphobic turn in british liberalism it, it maps right onto the kind of anti-corbyn uh, uh, uh turn as as well surely uh, i got a shout out to um jilly Kay and marila fanabecker who've got a chapter coming out trying to substantiate that that those two tendencies of transphobia and anti-Corbynism in the same period. Um, I mean, you, you were you were sort of a big a big part of the Corbyn project, at, at least the, the parts of it that I saw. Um, is there anything in that comparison that, that that you'd point to? Yeah, there's an awful lot in that comparison, and it's something I've been kind of trying to articulate for the last few years. So I'm really glad that the uh, authors you mentioned are are doing something more substantive on it. Um, I often cite a piece written by Joe Kennedy for the New Socialists called The Sublime Object of Ideology. And he basically argues that the way uh, commentators use their relative profile and privilege uh, with regards to the Corbyn movement would be to say something really, really sort of stupid and offensive uh, that is designed to provoke. Uh, and then when it gets the inevitable... Um, and, you know, something stupid and offensive designed to provoke that sits into an already kind of overwhelmingly established narrative uh, kind of thing Chomsky talks about in Manufacturing Consent, that you set up um, a narrative that becomes so familiar that anyone who challenges it just basically looks like they come from Mars, you know. And, um, you know, the, these narratives get just kind of dumber and nastier and more disingenuous. Everyone knows they're bullshit. Uh, nonetheless, these narratives are propagated, um, people on the left get angry, as is supposed to be the case, and then they will retweet some of the attacks on them and then talk about the nasty bullying they get just for saying that, I don't know, Corbyn wants to reopen Auschwitz or, like, trans women are like a plot to take over women's sports or, you know, whatever just stupid horseshit they're talking about. Um and then kind of quote tweet that and say, look how nasty they are. And another thing they did with both the left and trans people was characterize, characterize both groups as inherently misogynist. For one thing, you know, this kind of brocialist narrative 
this narrative that like trans women are appropriating female bodies, uh, characterized as misogynist and bullying and aggressive and nasty and thin-skinned and all the rest of it. And of course, any opposition you mounted to that at all was proof of their thesis. Um, and it was the same people a lot of the time. Um, you know, the same named individuals. I'm not going to name any of them, but we all know who they are. Um, we know all too well, really, because we've all spent too much time on that horrible website. <laughs> um, but, you know, same people using the same tactics at the same time against the same groups in the same way. Absolutely. Mm. Um, and, you know, yeah. Corbyn coming out unequivocally for trans rights obviously, like, drove them crazy. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Go ahead, it, David. It's almost that from the outside, it seemed like it's almost as if Jeremy Corbyn actually allowed them to be more uh, transphobic. It's just like, well, you know, I mean, if Jeremy Corbyn came out for for Greg's, then he couldn't eat Greg's anymore. And if, you know, he came out for Pratt, then he couldn't eat Pratt anymore. And, you know, it just the, the, the sort of mental hoops that it would allow people to say, you know, that's too radical. I mean, if Jeremy Corbyn had said, I really love your daughter, they'd be like, I don't love my daughter anymore. I mean, it was just, it's unreal. Jeremy Corbyn could have reversed the British commentariat into eating a ton of salt. And I think it's a shame he never used that power. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. He could have been like, don't do it. Don't do it. Oh, and I was um, uh, rereading um, trans uh, memoir uh, today, just having a look. Um, I was look I was reading the Manchester University section, and I think this is something we should chat about because um, it was. I mean, the sort of I guess for, for me reading your book, there were sort of two reasons why I found it so sort of compelling and, and interesting. And one is that you're an amazing writer who really kind of um, you know sort of just writes in a way that I can I can sort of follow easily and understand how important these issues are it's just um but the, the other reason is that we had like uh quite a, a oddly similar experience of Manchester places or not not the experience itself but like so many of what you talk about is the exact same sort of streets and locations that I went to at Manchester University and James and Izzy as well here are also Manchester you're, Uni you're um, or Manchester um, University um, grand <laughs> grand <laughs> and, yeah. and so I, I, I was in Owens Park myself <laughs> and and uh, you, you were in Oak House if I remember from the book and and uh, but it, you know and uh, what else was I mean some of the detail of the place obviously m many of these institutions you talk about like Fifth Avenue and Joshua Brooks and all that. These are, you know, iconic Manchester drinking places that, you know, so many people have been through in their university careers. But even down to some of the granular things you mentioned, uh, like I was also taught by um, Steve Rigby, uh, medieval studies and <laughs> things like that. There was just sort of so many um, points in your book where I was like, oh, yeah, that place or oh, that person, you know, but, but obviously coming to that as a, you know, as a as a straight man or as a mostly straight man uh, being 18 in Manchester, uh, you know, that that's so different to, to your experience of those very same places, which I just found... Um, incredibly compelling we have to go back to um the end of history back to the year 2000 um before before 9 11 and uh history started happening again uh so so i'm i'm an 18 year old going to manchester in september 2000 um to study a history degree at the end of history and um i'm identifying i think as a gay man as a cross-dresser at the time and i get put into halls oak house with um seven guys 
um, who blessed them. I was quite fond of them all individually, but together um, they were not the easiest company. We um, we got threatened with eviction after um, angering the Commonwealth Games Committee um, <laughs> because the Commonwealth Games <laughs> were being held in uh, held in Manchester in two thousand two. And so in sort of round about Christmas 2000, uh, various dignitaries were being shown around Manchester halls of residence and being told this is where the cream of your country's athletes will be living for the duration of the games. And uh, our flat was being renovated at the end of the year. Uh, and I had introduced my flatmates to Bill Hicks, um, whose quotes they had written all over the walls in permanent marker. Um, as well as growing a family of mold, the Desai family, uh, having various um, traces of various drugs all around the room. Basically, they're all really into drum and bass. Um, <laughs> and I had the room next to the living room. Um, I ended up quite liking some drum and bass, just because if you have to do that much dope to go to sleep, and then you have to sleep to that much drum and bass, you're going to end up sort of, you know, developing a taste for it yeah. just out of stockholm syndrome yeah. if nothing else. <laughs> um coded language by dj cross though that's that's a really good record um but um yeah so that was that was my sort of living experience so i i started looking elsewhere for people who would be like people i'd actually hang out with um and so there were two places really uh both of which were based on me wishing it was still the mid 80s and one was the music scene and one was the queer scene um so I found the music scene was mostly just like blokes in tracksuits sort of playing the whole Stone Roses album on acoustic guitar in the Star and Garter. Um, so, you know, I had to sort of set up my own music scene, really. I sort of ran a record label with a couple of friends. And with the queer scene, that wasn't really for me either. I mean, it was still very much the gay and lesbian scene at that point. And it hadn't really occurred to me how much sort of trans people had sort of lost in a lot of the identity politics arguments within the queer scene within the 80s and 90s and that the sort of gay male scene didn't really retain trans women at all um so i didn't really find any trans women in in manchester and i was just looking in the wrong place i mean it's kind of an interesting thing now just to loop back to the previous conversation i think a lot of the anti-corbyn and anti-trans stuff is just based on like middle-aged people who are losing their edge and hate the young and um like the problem i had as a young proto-trans woman in in manchester was that all the trans women i encountered were sort of 20 years or more older than me and i i you know mm. couldn't really relate to them because of that uh one place i did like uh was a place in um just off canal street canal street had um because queer as folk had been shown on channel four the previous winter uh and that brought an influx of straights really to canal street and i got really frustrated with canal street because it was either um you know these trendy trendy bars full of straight people really um or these very untrendy bars full of like older gay men that weren't particularly welcoming to like young kind of femme people like me really so um there wasn't really that much of a place for me there but on the edge of uh, canal street was a bar called manhattan's which was this show bar uh, which had like trans women working behind the bar and drag shows. And I always wanted to go there more, but I could, I couldn't find a, a sort of a group of like trans or queer people who are up for going there with me regularly. Uh, a couple of friends of mine um, would sort of stop off there on the way home after a night out. But in terms of people who 
I could like dress up with and go there and actually kind of become part of a scene there. I never really found that. Um, but Manhattan's always kind of stuck with me. And I found out researching the memoir, actually, um, that they were set up by Julia Grant, who those of you who have uh, watched all eight hours of the new Adam Curtis uh, series on BCI player, um, if you weren't familiar with her before, Julia Grant was the star of the BBC's Change of Sex documentary in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, with the notorious interviews with uh, Dr. John Randall, the um, rather terrifying uh, clinician at, at the Charing Cross Gender Identity Clinic at the time, noted for being a really kind of um, passive aggressive gatekeeper. Um, but Julia Grant, you know, had used the profile she made on, on that series to um, set up a couple of bars in Manchester that were aimed at trans women, basically. So there was there was some space for us. Um, I mean, but at the time, I was more more inclined towards just carving out my own space with the record label and the nights we put on, um, which meant I had quite a lot of like freedom for self-expression. There were moments where I didn't um, because people were worried about homophobia and transphobia. But for the most part, I did. Um, but I didn't really have like-minded people around me. I mean, I loved the people around me. Um, and, you know, several of them are still very close friends of mine. Uh, the most important friendship I made uh, was with a guy called Joe Stretch, who was at the time lead singer of a band called Performance, who really should have been like one of the biggest bands of the 2000s. Like their early gigs were utterly brilliant. Um, two women, two men, incredibly well-dressed, kind of really tapping into that sort of 80s retro sort of electro clash stuff but with a really kind of dark take on sexuality and um you know kind of slightly ahead of the curve in picking up on certain sort of electronic post-punk things like the kind of early human league records and sort of pulling interesting things out of those out of those records um and you know what happened to them was in part that they they signed to a major label who didn't really get them and wanted them to be another band like the Killers or somebody else who was sort of big in the mid 2000s and sort of, you know, sort of sucked all the interesting things out of them, really. Um, and they ended up making a couple of albums that were good, but they they weren't really the band they they should have been. And, you know, Joe, Joe has since become a, a novelist and creative writing teacher. Um, and indeed, my Guardian column was uh, was his idea. Um, so he's, he's a very, very important friendship to me. Like, uh, that I kind of made on that scene. And again, very much someone who was sympathetic to the trans stuff from an outsider perspective. Um, but, you know, it was like a quite dandyish straight guy, basically. Um, yeah, I I, I, I I can talk more about early, early 2000s Manchester. I mean, uh, you mentioned Steve Rigby, who um, taught medieval history in, in Manchester and was my personal tutor, was a committed Marxist, um, big Manchester City fan. I <laughs> was and remain remain incredibly fond of him um yeah i um i distinctly remember a seminar uh, in my second year uh, one of those seminars that's at nine o'clock in the morning and everyone's kind of half cut and somebody hadn't done the reading and dr Ripley turns around to the student and just says so so and so you were going to do a presentation for us weren't you and he was like oh, look i'm really sorry i haven't done the reading and Dr. Rippey turns around to the rest of the class and says, what do we call it when somebody doesn't do the work and expects or hopes that everyone else is going to have done the work for them? And there's this awkward silence. He just goes, we call it exploitation. And uh, <laughs> that's, you know, the, the single best everyday 
application of Marxism, I think I've um, yeah. I've lived to witness. But but Manchester was a strange place at that time. I mean, it was sort of the IRA bombing was relatively recent. Um, Piccadilly Gardens was a building site for most of the time I was there, and in fact the the very Blairite regeneration of um, of Manchester, the Japanese architect whose name escapes me, who who redesigned Piccadilly Gardens, that was completed in mm. summer 2003 when I graduated. Um, and that's being kind of torn down again at the moment. But I mean, Owen Hathley has a great chapter on Manchester in A Guide to the New Ruins of Great Britain, where he argues it's basically like the archetypal Blairite city. And that was really happening while I was there, this kind of trading off its own heritage. Not so much of... Um, well, I mean, actually, 24-hour party people was being filmed during my first year. And in fact, I went to the auditions. Uh, I didn't get a part because I wasn't... Well, I didn't get an audition because I wasn't from Manchester, um, which I was kind of heartbroken about at the time. But, um, uh, when I arrived yeah. uh, three years later, three years after you uh, in 2003, like they were almost handing out copies of 24-hour party people mm. in Freshers' Week so you could get up to speed. But I exactly, love you mentioned yeah. um, the Star and Garter, though, which is a kind of good example of those sort of enclaves of the city that sort of resisted that uh, Blairite's regeneration. It was the only um, club where you kind of had to wear a coat on the dance floor because the dance floor was upstairs and part <laughs> so of the filthy. roof was missing. It was absolutely yeah. freezing. Then the staircase um, was always so soaked with drinks that there was a kind of pile of women in vintage dresses at the bottom mm. of the stairs which simply slid down to the bottom. Um, and yeah, you couldn't wear white in there because it wouldn't be white when you came home. Absolutely um, not. I, th I think the other thing for our, our younger uh, listeners <laughs> on the left, the, the other thing that, that you have to picture when listening to this old fartism <laughs> that we're indulging in is that this is, this is a world where students smoked in clubs, so which I think kind of um, coded such a large amount of the experience of the time. I just remember getting home with little burn marks on my mm. arms um, after any night out. And I mean, I've got a, such a vivid image of um, Oak House, the halls of residence that you were in with um, this was three years later, this was the time of the strokes and the libertines. It, it would be sort of vintage suit jackets and mm. um, military jackets hanging out of the windows um in order to air out all mm. the uh coated mm -hmm. nicotine <laughs> yeah it was it was it was grim in that respect though i kind of it was quite democratic i think everyone just stinking of smoke um yeah, this is my most nigel farage opinion is i sort of miss smoking in like mm -hmm. bars i'll give you everything on this i swear just promise you'll always be there when we get you onto comedy um you you, you wrote a, a, an article last year uh for uh, Red Pepper, looking back on um, yet another British institution that completely humiliated itself through the Corbyn period, which is which is comedy, and uh, I, I, I suspect that the pattern that you described applying to the kind of rise of liberal transphobia, the pattern of anti-Corbynism, also applied to a, a kind of um, conservative. Uh, uh, veering in in British comedy. Yeah, and I think there's there's something in there about the kind of discourse around class because, um, you know, there are a lot of people in comedy who seen themselves as being working class because they had a working class background. But you know what has happened to the comedy industry since the nineties, really, and Stuart Lee 
you know, always talked very well about this in the 2000s, early 2010s, is it just became this like multi-million pound industry. Um, you know, people made huge amounts of money out of stand-up comedy as long as they weren't too unsafe. Uh, so, you know, you go from getting... Um, you know, these kind of outsider weirdos like Frank Sidebottom or Ted Chippington on one hand or someone like Bill Hicks on the other. I mean, heaven knows there's tons of problems with Bill Hicks, but, um, you know, you don't get material like his stuff on the LA riots or the Iraq war on live at the Apollo, you know. Um, and so people, you know, sort of, and this is this kind of authenticrat thing that Joe Kennedy talks about. Um, you know, people saw themselves not having a working class background and so not really thinking about what their material interests were at that particular point. Um, and, you know, with the kind of Corbyn stuff, I think, as well, as well as, you know, it actually being a threat to their material interests, it was also um, a threat to their kind of conceptions of themselves as, you know, these kind of radical outsiders, because during the sort of Blair, Brown, Cameron period, coalition period, it was quite easy to sort of position yourself to the left of mainstream politics without really having to do an awful lot of intellectual work at all. Um, very easy, I think. And obviously the presence of Corbyn made them have to sort of pick a side. And if they weren't picking a side, think about why they weren't picking a side. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's very easy to position yourself to the left of Corbyn. It's kind of, you know, it's social democracy. Um, so, you know, there was a socialist, well, um, a communist or anarchist critique to be made of Corbyn and Corbynism for sure, uh, which I was always kind of interested in, willing to listen to. Uh, but again, that doesn't get you on Have I Got News For You. Um, it's too difficult a position to articulate uh, i mean i think again the roots of the anti-corbinism stuff were there before in in a similar uh pattern with the sort of journalists and transphobia that we talked about like a lot of comedians dealt incredibly badly with basically having to be on twitter and i think one reason why Stuart lee came out of the first half of the 2010s better than pretty much anyone else is because he was wise enough to not bother with twitter <laughs> um because you know twitter nobody is under any pressure to be funny all the time on twitter except comedians. Uh, and no one is funny all the time. Um, you know, not even the the greatest comedians are funny all the time. And, you know, some stuff works, some stuff doesn't. Um, but, you know, the sort of pressure they, they must have felt to be funny all the time um, works out very badly for them. And the fact that, you know, a lot of anonymous weirdos were often far funnier. And far funnier in a, in a very different way, you know, that kind of not just probably made them insecure that like the younger people were funnier than them although i think that was um that was there but you know this idea that actually there was this sort of like collection of anonymous weirdos that as a group uh you know kind of created kind of discourses and dialogues that were staggeringly funny and much funnier than you know any kind of clever one-liner that an individual comedian yeah. could think of to put on twitter so i think Along with journalists, they came out of Twitter incredibly badly yeah. um, and then came out of Corbynism really, really badly, um, partly because that kind of, you know, that sort of hegemonic centrism that I think a lot of comedians kind of took on and were rewarded for taking on, um, again, just kind of came unstuck in the Corbyn period. I mean, in the article, I used the example of the Charlie Brooker um, section on his screen wipe or news wipe program in 2016 where he's talking about the whole kind of boring Farago with sort of Corbyn and Richard Branson on Virgin Trains and whether or not Corbyn could get a seat and the trouble with that is if you kind of 
both sides something like i mean do you remember all the like nonsense around like pasties and gregs in the Miliband period i think there was going to be a tax on hot pasties but not cold pasties or the other way around i can't really remember but it basically resulted like loads of politicians just like trying to pretend they'd eaten at greg's before um, <laughs> and you know you can both sides that you can take the piss out of everyone there because it's a stupid inane posturing bullshit um and i mean you know you could argue that the corbyn thing on virgin trains was but you'd actually need to spell that out yeah. um because if you just both sides corbyn and richard branson then you're just siding with power yeah um and the brooker thing i mean he'd already you know he'd already written a couple of things before which I actually admired saying look you know i'm getting sucked into the establishment i can't write about it in the same way mm -hmm. um and his you know, sister-in-law was like a labor mp who'd voted for uh, owen smith in the leadership campaign who who was that uh rupert huck oh, right. who's by no means by no means one of the worst ones no 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 but far far worse people in the labor it's party, such a small so, world um, like yeah. are there just three bars for politicians <laughs> i think there like, might be culture just, writers <laughs> In in London, that keep keep them away from you know the hordes of falafel throwing momentum thugs. But um, <laughs> like the problem, another problem for them, I think, was just like the mainstream media just attacked Corbyn from every possible angle, including ones that contradicted the other angles. Uh, there's a brilliant thread someone put on Twitter about this, and you know, sort of saying he, Corbyn's too radical. He's not radical enough. He's too left wing. He's not left wing enough um he's too pro-immigrant he's too anti-immigrant all, all this stuff and so it became almost impossible to take the piss out of corbyn um without aligning yourself with corporate media and of mm -hmm. course it's a structural problem with things like mock the week and have i got news for you that they draw all of their material from corporate media basically um i mean they could draw from you know the morning star or navara or the new socialist or whatever but they don't um and i don't think they're going to i mean they might draw the odd i don't think ash sarkar might have been who i got news for you but you know they're not going to use these um these publications to inform their perspectives um so yeah there were these problems with just like yeah like shit posts on anonymous shit posters on twitter being far funnier than them mm -hmm. and another problem i think for comedy i'm going to use a kind of example of this um is again it's a kind of thing to do with the internet which is the you know, pre-social media, it sort of made sense to have somebody whose job was to sort of study politics and pull out people's kind of ticks, uh, you know, the underlying um, truth of, of, you know, the kind of coded language that politicians all often use, etc. Um, or just their absurdities or all the things that made them ludicrous. And there were have plenty of things with, with Corbyn and the movement that they could have picked out, but because they were just so blinded by the hatred of it, I think they didn't. Um, but the trouble is now with social media is that everyone is seeing that stuff all the time and talking about it. And it sort of makes like professional satirists, I don't know if it makes them redundant, but it makes their job an awful lot harder. Um, I mean, I remember, for example, with Change UK, which, you know, is still the funniest thing that's happened in British politics, I think. Um but I, I went out for some drinks round about the European elections. I think it was just before Change UK had split up. And we all, we just got onto Change UK quite quickly. And we're just laughing about the fact that like the singer from the Long Pigs and Gavin Esler had thrown their hats into the ring uh, for the European elections. But we ended up, you know, sort of talking about the way that sort of Chukarimana, Heidi Allen, Anna Subri came across on TV. Um and we talked for, 
you know a while and we just sort of talked about them doing a cover of the bbc children in need version of um perfect day that would obviously be their theme song you know right down to like which lines chucker and anna would sing to each other and who in change uk would would sing which lines and you know the obligatory mike gapes impression of him singing bits of the songs and all of this and it's just like we don't need to wait until next friday for have i got news for you like we're perfectly capable of swapping all these kind of observations that are tailored to us and specifically what we find funny. And I think that was a big problem for, for comedy as well. So I think there are all sorts of economic, political and technological things um, that basically left these people kind of high and dry, but they retain positions in the media because, you know, we can't really get rid of them. Yeah. Um, but have become the establishment. I think when you're on Twitter, I think at this point, especially if you like, you know, half of the Twitter users are on some sort of psychostimulant or they have some sort of insomnia, you know, you're mainlining one-liners all day and you get to to see a professional do it. And you say, you know, that it's, it's a bit like if you've gone keto for a week or something, and then you, and then you, you go to like McDonald's and you're like, okay, that's really refined food. You know, and there's this, this sort of ickiness that, that the, the sort of professional comedians leave the taste they leave in your mouth after you've actually like had the raw good stuff for all week. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I, I just think like a weekly satire show where professional satirists do the satire just can't compete anymore. Um, and you would only kind of watch that stuff if you just held the internet in complete contempt, which is, you know, a kind of very elite position. Increasingly it's a kind of middle-aged position as well. Um and so what else is going to happen other than this kind of like reactionary ossification, really? You you mentioned you were make you were doing some filmmaking and things like that. I wonder if you want to like just tell us about um some of your upcoming projects apart from the book and stuff as well and what you what you're doing now. And and also I think we should send this, by the way, to Steve Rigby, if you agree, and, and just uh, <laughs> let him know that two of his former students, because he was a great teacher for me too, and I I, mm. I like him a lot. So we should we should um, we should show him this. <laughs> I do have a screenplay I'm working on. Uh, about the um, British politician Victor Grayson, who was the first um, independent socialist to be elected in Britain, possibly anywhere in the world, in 1907, in this kind of like real shot by election, um, found Parliament really kind of not to his liking. He didn't uh, get on as a parliamentary MP, didn't last very long, um, but subsequently disappeared uh, in 1920 after challenging the government on. Um, on the honour cell, which, you know, is pretty small for right now, but was quite a big deal in terms of corruption in 100 years ago. I, I had a film uh, that I had funding for uh, where I was going to play the central character, who was the queer surrealist author René Crevel, um, who died in 1935 after sort of failed attempts to reconcile communism and surrealism. Uh, but I was going to make a sort of quite surreal, I guess, uh, film um, about him, uh, but then the pandemic hit. Um, so that got shelved, uh, but I had funding to do that. Um, but I'm quite enjoying actually at the moment with variations finished, I'm quite enjoying not having a big project on, uh, really. I mean, apart from this, this screenplay, but quite enjoying not having a big project on and just kind of being open to the world and what I feel it necessary to, to write about and, you know, maybe not know what form I'm going to use either. I'm not sure if the next project will be a novel or, more short stories or, or non-fiction. Um, I mean, I might write something about my involvement with the Corbyn project at some point, but I think it would have to be fiction or something 
that wasn't just a sort of straight up history of it because there's going to be thousands of those both pro and anti um but i'm not sure what form that will take yet And, uh, you know, thanks so much, Julia. I think we've all loved talking to you about everything, really. Uh, and it's been um, lovely to have you on. And we really appreciate uh, everything. And we, we can't wait to read the new book and see what you're up to next. Yeah, I mean, I could have done it for much longer. It's just like being down the pub, you know. <laughs>